Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back. My name is Diana Kander. I'm so excited for you to hear today's interview. Now, I give a lot of keynotes and most of them include some aspect of Amazon's innovation culture, whether it's how they develop new products and services to how they think about and teach failure in their organization to how they get rid of products that just aren't working. I've been a huge fan of their innovation methods. And today I get to speak to Ian Freed, somebody who has been at the front lines of some of the biggest products uh, in the last two decades at Amazon. Ian served as vice president and technology advisor to Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. And what that means is he followed Jeff around to all his meetings, to all his work, listen to him, think through ideas so that Ian knew exactly how Jeff's mind worked, how he wanted products to be built so that he could then go out and lead many products without having to go back and ask questions about them. And that's exactly what he did. Ian led the Amazon Kindle business from the beginning, from inception to 2010. He led the Amazon Fire Phone, which is what we spend a lot of today's conversation talking about. But After that, he led Amazon Echo and Alexa, that business from inception through the first product release. And he even led consumer services at Amazon, including Amazon restaurants. So he has seen so many different aspects of the organization and really knows not only the ins and outs, but exactly how Jeff Bezos thinks. So I'm so excited that he's here, that after he left Amazon Uh, Ian took his learnings and launched something called Bamboo Learning, which we'll also talk about today. It's an organization focused on developing breakthrough at-home learning experience for kids and families, an incredible company that we're now using in our home. It's going to be a great conversation. And specifically, Ian's going to share what happened to the Amazon Fire Phone. We're going to do a full after-action review on what went wrong, why they didn't create a version 2, He's going to explain market pull versus technology push and how they thought about it at Amazon, how Jeff Bezos made failure okay, and Jeff's favorite story to tell to reinforce this point inside the company, how Amazon decides which products are good but not good enough, and the advice Jeff Bezos gave to Ian after the Fire Phone failure. Before we get to the show, I'd love for you to take a second to rate or review the show to let other people know that it exists and that it's worth their time. And with that, please enjoy this interview with Ian Freed. Ian, I'm so excited to have you here. I can't believe you said yes. In fact, <laughs> as as I was researching you and how few interviews you've done, I had to make my first question why did you say yes? Well, it's a great question. I, I mean, I think your your topic is a really interesting one. And um, the idea of, you know, what impact does failure have on future success, I think is a really interesting topic. You know, as you know, I spent many years at Amazon. And, and it's also, interestingly, a topic that's discussed 
pretty openly at Amazon, all the way up to Jeff Bezos. So that's the main reason, I guess. I'm so giddy. I talk about Amazon in every keynote that I give, and I have some hypotheses about how things go on there. And today I get to test those hypotheses with you, and um, I couldn't be more excited about that. So I would love to kind of set the stage for the conversation. Uh, I had originally approached you about talking the Amazon Fire Phone project, which you led. And it's an incredible story. Uh, you spent four years, $100 million, a 1,000 people on your team, and you launch it. And, and what happens? What happens that's different than what you thought was going to happen? Yeah. Well, one thing I should just you know make super clear, I can't confirm those exact numbers that you gave, but you know, it was a big effort, but yeah. So, uh, we worked on it for, for many, many years, uh, four years, that part I can confirm. It was a huge effort. You know, we knew from the very beginning that competing with a company like Apple, which is certainly legendary in the industry, uh, would be difficult. But, uh, when we launched, what I would say is a lot of people very early, including the press, thought it was really interesting, really cool. But I mean, bluntly, it didn't sell very well. And I think as often happens, when that starts to occur, you know, the press magnifies how bad it is. And uh, but it was by no means a success. I mean, it, let's, you know. I would not pretend that it was a success. There was some really interesting technology in there. And I think at the end of the day, it was not technology that customers really cared about. One of the things that has been important to me in my career, and I think this was one of those mistakes, whenever you're involved in business, it's really important to look for what's often called market pull. Do people in the market want what you're offering versus technology push? And technology pushes, hey, we have this really cool widget and we really want people to like it. So, hey, look at our widget. And I think, unfortunately, too much of what we offered wound up being more about technology push than market pull. That said, whenever you're doing something wildly new and different, and our phone did have many new and wildly different things, it's very difficult to maintain confidentiality and assess the true market pull. And, uh, you know, we can talk about Kindle, which is the counterexample where we definitely could not test it. And there was no real, in fact, any ebook product that had existed before it was a total failure. And so why did we think that, you know, what we built there? So that's kind of the, the opposite story, but we can keep happy to keep talking about Firephone and, and all that for a while. Well, I, I think it's a, it's an excellent corollary because you know the the was it the first Kindle that was the runaway success or did it take a couple of iterations and why did you decide to not have those iterations with the Fire Phone? Yeah, great question. Yeah, what I would say about Kindle is it was a wild success from the beginning compared to what we expected. We thought it would be a multi-year effort to be something that a mass audience would care about. Um, it, I wouldn't describe it as a mass audience in the beginning, simply because we we only built in a certain number and we sold them. And you know, the first batch we sold on day one. So whenever you do that, just right there, that's a wild success. But as often happens in the tech world where it's in devices or software, 
it's not a hard and fast rule, but often it's kind of your second or third iteration where you really start to get it right. And with Kindle, the idea of getting books in 60 seconds um, was something that had never been done before. And I think that captured the imagination of a lot of consumers. In the beginning, you know, Kindle One users tended to be early adopters, but we knew one of the interesting things about devices is by the time you launch it, you already know all the problems that you need to fix. And you have to, by the way, be working on them. And so with Kindle, you know, we knew that we could make it so much better in dozens of different ways. And I think because we had that runaway success versus our expectation in the beginning, we were totally excited to go do version two and version three and, you know, version 10 eventually. With the phone, the big difference was there were really big entrenched competitors in the market at the time and not just Apple. When we started, Apple was the obvious competitor. You have to go into kind of the details of the industry at the time, but we knew that Android was a formidable operating system competitor. And by the time we launched, Samsung was a huge success in the phone business. But when we started, I don't even think they were number three. They might've been number four or five within Android. And so our hypothesis was, well, we could at least be better than the best Android phone. So then, you know, suddenly we might be number two. And along the way, phones are really, really hard to build. In Kindle, aside from there not being really an entrenched, successful ebook, ebooks are a lot simpler than phones. <laughs> really, what do you need to do? I mean, we were the first company to ever make purchase available on the device itself. So what do you need to do? You need to be able to show a book, turn pages, maybe have a table of contents, jump around, and in our case, buy a book. So there has to be a store. Okay, well, on a phone, there's like just, I had very, very clear aligned conversations with Jeff on this. Just to be able to launch, you have to have 30 applications. You need to be able to make a phone call, text, email, calendar, alarm clock, calculator. I mean, there's all these things. And so it was a huge effort, as we discussed. When it wasn't a runaway success, I think we all said, okay, if we're going to do another phone, it can't be a follow-on to this because customers just didn't care. And so if we're going to do another phone, we need a totally different idea. And one thing I would say that was consistent about Amazon, which kind of gets to your point about like, what do you learn from failure? If Amazon has a success or a failure, we examine why, or, you know, I'm not there anymore, but we examined why. And I think what we realized is we didn't provide something that customers really, really wanted that was differentiated from the iPhone and you know Samsung's phone and, and a few others. And so the notion is until you have that new idea, there's nothing to build. I totally hear what you're saying. And yet the speed at which it happened, you launched the Amazon Fire phone and within four months, you're running the Echo project. Mm. And that's not just a one product phenomenon. In yeah. fact, when I do discuss this, I talk about 
Amazon Destinations, Amazon Local, Amazon Wallet, Amazon Local Register, Amazon Cloud Player, Test Drive, WebPay. Some of these products were less than six months old when Amazon decided to shut them down. And that is a timetable to decide to close down a project that does not exist at any other company. Well, number one, I was actually running Firephone, Echo, and some other things all at the same time. Okay. So it's not like I stopped doing Firephone and started doing Echo. I was doing both and more. So I think the other issue is, you know, what you're observing is the external kind of facing product history, if you will. So, you know, it's not necessarily true that nothing was going on on a phone four months after okay. after it launched. And honestly, it's hard to remember the exact timetable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think Amazon also is pretty sober about when something is has a chance and there's a different idea that has a chance and when something really needs a major redo. And I don't think anybody felt like the Fire Phone was close. <laughs> you know, it needed a major redo. So, Well, let's talk about what exists up front to let you know that that kind of conversation is even okay to have. Because again, in most places, if I'm in charge of a project, my ego is so wrapped up in launching this thing that I have to, you know, make an argument for why it should keep going because I'm afraid my job is going to depend on it. Yeah. I mean, I would say in part, some of the other ones that you mentioned, I mean, one of one of Bezos's favorite stories is the story about the third party seller business. So I'll try to give you the big picture and then sure. a couple examples. There is a culture of accepting failure. Just always, from what I can tell, I mean, I, I wasn't at the company in the very early days. You know, I started in, in 2004, but um, there are already examples of things that failed and that out of, I mean, sometimes this term wasn't exactly used, but if you think about it, you know, out of the ashes, a new phoenix arose. So one, there's a culture of accepting failure because it means you're taking risks. It's a very positive culture from the standpoint of allowing entrepreneurs to take risks and, and some of those risks succeed and some fail. The other thing that I would say is Amazon is also very good at allowing people to move throughout the company. And so um, I actually, my my last senior VP at Amazon was a guy named Jeff Blackburn. He was kind of a classic corporate development guy. At one point, he's like, I want to learn something new. And then he actually moved to Europe and I think first ran transportation for Europe, which he knew nothing about. It was an extreme example. Um, and then I think he ran customer service. So So there's acceptance of risk-taking and willingness to move people around really to both for their learning and, and ultimately it helps the company. And so the classic example that Bezos talks about a lot is in the early days of Amazon, it was selling, you know, books and then eventually music and video, uh, which actually was VHS tapes at the time. And then eBay launched and was wildly successful with auctions And it looked like something that Amazon should get involved in. This was way before I was there. And so Amazon launched auctions and boom, there it went out and it was, you know, a giant failure. And 
there is a bunch of introspective work to find out why. And then out of that, out of the ashes of, of Amazon auctions came something called Z shops. And the idea of Z shops was, you know, if I, let's say I'm an independent third party seller and I don't want to auction off fishing equipment, I just want to sell it. I can create the Ian Freed fishing Z shop and people will know to come to my Z shop to buy fishing gear. Well, the problem is that meant every individual third-party seller had to promote themselves. So that didn't work either. So out of the ashes of auctions came another failure called Z-Shops. And on the third try, and this is why Jeff you know, kind of loves this story, this, the team went back and thought of a different way to do it. And what they realized is this notion of an Amazon detail page where there's a product Levi's 501 jeans. That's dating me a little bit. You know, there's only one place on Amazon where you can find those Levi's 501 jeans, but maybe Amazon sells it and maybe Ian Freed's jean shop sells it, denim shop. And the rules would be that whoever had the best offer, both in terms of price and ability to get it to consumer quickly with low cost shipping, would win the buy box. And so when they did that, it, lo and behold, it worked. And I think today, you know, 35, 40, maybe even 50% of the sales of Amazon come from those third-party sellers. So the point is, it took three tries to get it to work. And Jeff would tell that story inside the company and outside the company because it's an example of it's okay to fail, just learn from it and move on to the next version. But you better have a different idea. And it was like Z shops was totally different from auctions and third party selling was totally different from Z shops. What exists at the front end of a new project? Let's say any of these, including your experience with the Fire Phone. Questions that you have to answer about what failure will look like. Because I also feel like in most organizations, they have success metrics. Like this is what the the awesomeness that's going to happen as a result. But nobody ever talks about failure metrics. Like we'll know we need to reassess if these numbers are hit. Do you have anything like that? I mean, I can't say that there are failure metrics in the same way there are success metrics. What's really interesting, though, is Amazon has a pretty well-documented process where the first thing you do, I mean, of course, you have to think up the idea, but one of the first things you do as a group is you create the press release that you envision for the product. And different groups did this in a slightly different way. What I always like to do is build the, you know, the ultimate product in the press release like this this is a winning product. Here's the press release about that winning product. We might decide that it's going to take two releases to get here, but this is the product. And there's a frequently asked questions list that is that it goes alongside that, that press release. And those frequently asked questions can often get to how do you know you're, you're succeeding? But it could be it's all, it's primarily from a customer facing perspective. So we might ask, here's a, here's a good one for the frequently asked questions for the fire phone. What apps do I need? Well, you know, 30, the ones I was starting to list, right? What's the app store story? That's a really interesting FAQ. I, I probably should go back and look at that one because 
we knew it was a, a question, a, a vulnerable issue for that product. So you you do ask all those questions, and then you have to kind of build both to the press release and in line with your frequently asked questions, or you debate it, and then you actually change the answer to the free, frequently asked questions. Sometimes that happens because market dynamics change. Sometimes you have a new idea. But what I would say about a failure is it's a, a true failure. You know, I, again, I wasn't there during auctions, um, but I was for Firephone. You kind of just know. <laughs> Okay, so you shut it down, and I read this quote of something that Jeff Bezos said to you after the Amazon Fire phone that he said he hopes you won't lose a night of sleep over it. Yeah. And so my first question is, did he really say that? Yeah, And absolutely. was there a follow-up? Like, did he explain why, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, the headline, I mean, I don't, I, I, I'm not sure I can remember verbatim, but I mean, the 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 gist of it was like, you took a risk. You know, we all took a risk. We were in this together and you created a bunch of new innovations. And I don't know if he said this, but, you know, some of those innovations found their way into other products, certainly in the tablet and certainly, and some weren't just innovations. I mean, I'll come back to that in a minute, but the other large area that was influenced by the work around Firephone was was certainly Echo and Alexa. Um, there were many many other things that went into Echo and Alexa that you know weren't at all driven by Firephone. But but it was it had certainly an impact, and a lot of people who were working on Firephone moved over to uh, work on Alexa and Echo as that team started to grow. And so I would argue, like at a minimum, the thing it did was significantly increase the number of high quality engineers and product folks um, inside the company who were great at building devices. So that, like, Jeff was certainly making that comment uh, to some degree. And the other one, I mean, it didn't come up in this particular conversation, but when you launch a phone, one of the things that you have to pass is is what carriers call stability, carrier stability. And you can totally understand why you would want this there's a metric called mean time between failure. And what a carrier wants is like many, 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 many days. Like I think it might've been 800 hours. So what that means is your phone won't do anything weird at all (laughs) for, I mean, 720 hours would be, I think 30 days if I've done the math right. So I think it was like more than 30 days. So it means like, Maybe every 40 days, you know, you can launch the phone app or, or launch texting and it has some hiccup. And for sure, no Amazon device had ever had that level of meantime between failure when we got to doing those tests. And so there were many, many features of the Fire Phone that overlapped with uh, the tablets so it gets a little geeky, but a lot of that learning immediately was useful in the tablets and it made the tablets a much more stable product. And also the discipline of having run through that and the learning made all the products better. So, you know, I, I think the main lesson from Jeff was just, look, I, I, 
I coined this term at one point in my career. I swung the bat. I'm a big baseball, you know, fan. Oh yeah, we can I'm do a, baseball now. I'm a terrible baseball player, but <laughs> you know, at some point in my career, I'm like, I just want to swing the bat. You know, I want to swing the bat with the bases loaded. And it's one of the reasons I came to Amazon because it has so, I mean, even in 2004, I knew that the potential impact it could have on technology. And, you know, one of my favorite things about Kindle is it put books in the hands of people all over the world. And so it, I was right. It had a huge impact, even bigger than, you know, even Jeff imagined, um, even as late as 2004. But, you know, his main point was like, you just, you swung the bat and, you know, maybe you missed that time, but there'll be other times at the plate. And so, you know, remember that. Did it help? Did you need it at the time? Were you uh, like, I'm sure. great. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I mean, it. I think... Whenever you're doing hard stuff, it's a giant roller coaster. And I, you know, that's still true today with my business, Bamboo Learning. I mean, anytime you try to do something hard, you're going to have ups and downs. And if Jeff had never said anything, I'd have been, I'd have been okay. But having, you know, the person you've worked with who's an incredible innovator, one of the smartest people, I, I could, you know, this is how would you ever measure? But he might be the smartest person I've ever met <laughs> who's, you know, he's demanding, he's respectful, but he's like, he wants to win <laughs> for him to tell you, you know, it's okay. It was really thoughtful, you know, a personal moment. And, uh, you know, I, abs I mean, I'm sure I came home and told my wife and, you know, I still, I mean, believe me, when I had to sit in the room with the CFO um, and the finance <laughs> team and know what we had to do. Um, and at the time it was a, a gentleman named Tom Skutak who I got along with extremely well. And Tom was also very, you know, respectful of the sort of risk we took. And he, you know, he was, he knew it was risky. Um, but I remember saying to Tom, like, I don't ever want to have another one of these meetings <laughs> and not because he was, you know, not because he yeah. was being difficult. Was he was just like, it's a lot of money and like yeah. seeing it all there in front of you and saying, wow, that's, that was, a that, that didn't work out so well. So having Jeff say, you know, it's okay. And I think, I mean, he's, he said later publicly, somebody asked him like, what about the fire phone? Didn't you guys lose, you know, tons and tons of money. He's like, you know what? Yeah, we did, but but I guarantee you we're going to do something in the future that loses 10 times as much money. And it was, you know, that's the way he thinks about it. <laughs> and the reason is cuz they're going to do something that's 10 times riskier and yeah. harder. So, it puts it in context. So I I love the comments that you're making about uh the the ashes and the phoenix rising. I think that what happens in most organizations is when something doesn't work out and it's embarrassing we shut it down and then we make like a 180 turn to something completely different that doesn't remind us of that thing that happened. And I, I truly believe that in the ashes, there are all these assets to be used for lots and lots of other projects. And I just want you to name a couple. I mean, Alexa being, you know, the most famous one. Uh, we already talked about the engineering talent that you brought to Amazon. but any any other assets that were in that 
thing that didn't work out that actually we could sit here and quantify as much more valuable than the amount of money they wrote off that year. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I don't know because I think the impact is still being felt and this might sound kind of tactical, but I think it's going to prove out to not be one of those lists, one of those apps on the list of 30 that we had to build for the phone was maps. And that's kind of an interesting story. I'll try to keep it short, but you know, by far Google maps was, was the, you know, the gold standard, the blue ribbon. It was amazing. I loved Google maps. I still love Google, Google maps. I, you know, and we knew we couldn't get it because of the way Google kind of licensed and the restrictions they put around what we were trying to do with Firephone. So what happened along the way is actually Apple launched a maps product because they tried to like kick Google maps out and they cause they were fighting, you know, that happens periodically with tech companies. Sometimes they're friends, sometimes they're enemies, you know, they don't call it frenemies. They call it cooperation, <laughs> cooperation and competition. And, you know, Apple's an incredible company. Their maps was horrible when it first launched. And we were in the fortunate position of knowing, oh my God, you know, our maps has to, like, here's what not to do. Mm-hmm. And so we spent a ton of time. We actually, we had a, there's an interesting combination of, we acquired um, a couple companies, we built a bunch of our own stuff and we licensed from third parties. And so there's a kind of a thing in tech where build by our partner in the maps app, it was all three. <laughs> did all of them. And, and, you know, sometimes when you do that, you create this Frankenstein monster that just never works. But we made it work. And our Maps app was not Google. It was not. But, you know, we measured the accuracy. We were better than Apple on most metrics. We were on par with Google on a few metrics. You know, we were behind them on many, many others. But that Amazon Maps team wound up being very important when Amazon started creating its own delivery system. So you send out drivers and, um, you know, it used to be Amazon would call FedEx or, you know, drop stuff off at UPS or the post office, not literally, but, you know, very complex, amazing systems. But eventually Amazon had so much volume that they realized uh, they had to do their own, you know, at least supplement what the uh, other carriers were providing with their own delivery. And I think, I don't know all the details, but I know that the maps team spent a bunch of time kind of improving the route mapping and stuff for the drivers. And so, you know, that, like, I never would have expected that. (laughs) Um, So that's another one. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. So you spent a lot of your career as Jeff Bezos' technical advisor. You went from being in an executive role for most of your career to coming to Amazon and serving in this, what you call the staff position. Can you just explain what this person is. You were the third one of them, but they, they seem to lead to running really big things at Amazon afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the model, I think, I think Jeff learned about it from Bill Gates, uh, who had been doing it for a few years before Jeff started. And I think, I don't know this for sure, but I think in the military, I, I don't know anything about the military, but I think there's this uh, idea of an aide de camp 
And it's someone who I think usually is kind of next to the general all the time and, and learning from the general, but also like helping teams. So I'll just switch to the Amazon mall. The idea is I was with Jeff in every meeting, um, except some one-on-ones with his, you know, most senior staff that included board meetings, all the, all the broader senior staff meetings. And I was there to take notes, to be another person in the room. Cause Jeff, one great thing about him is he thinks about stuff. He doesn't always just react in the meeting. And if he's not sure, he might think about it for a few days or a week or even a month. And being in the room with him and hearing everything he hears, and also to some extent knowing everything he knows, not literally, but a lot of what's going on in many parts of the company, you're a great sounding board for him. And so he might ask you, you know, what did you think about this? Or you know, I'm struggling with this issue and the, uh, you know, there are some other, I, I mean, ultimately, and this is where the aide de camp idea comes in. The notion is that you're learning from the leader in this case, Jeff. And when I went to the Kindle team, even though I went back to work for uh, Steve Kessel, who I had worked for before I worked for Jeff, I was able to lead my team in a way that didn't require them to kind of get distracted and could be, especially on something like Kindle, be really closely aligned with Jeff, which was really important for Kindle One because that, you know, was a huge project for him and for the company. And so that's the model. Learn from from the CEO. and, And now Amazon has TAs for most of the leaders. Learn from the leader, help them, I did some other things like I did that there used to be these really long memos and I said that they're too long. You made them six pages. Um, I did. I wanted them to be four, but um, (laughs) Jeff and Tom and I compromised on six. But the most important thing was I could lead my teams and I didn't have to establish a relationship with Jeff. So it meant I could both coach the team to build products and communicate in the most streamlined possible way. And I could also build up potential leaders who needed to get the confidence, let's say of Steve, you know, our SVP or Jeff, like they wanted to see what other people could do. And I had Steve and Jeff already thought I was a great leader, which was, I mean, it, you know, I had learned a ton after that by way, but, but by the way, but I didn't feel like I had to be front and center in meetings and I could lift up people on my team, coach them, you know, if things went sideways, I would step in and say, hey, let's, you know, let's look at this a different way. Or, you know, maybe we need to come back to you on this question. But it allowed me to really um, put forward some great people over the years on my team. I mean, I bet six or eight people from those early days are now VPs of the company. And, you know, that I'm super proud of that. It was really fun to work with them. They totally deserve it. You know, I would go work for any of them in a heartbeat. So, well, I want to talk about the lessons uh, learned from being that close uh, to the smartest person who ever lived, <laughs> but I'd love to do it in the context of your new company, Bamboo Learning. So, can you give me like a high level description? And then I, I would love to hear about the lessons that you took from that relationship that you apply now. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, I co-founded Bamboo Learning uh, in early 2018. Uh, my co-founder is a woman named Irina Fine, 
my career, which we've alluded to, is about 30 years in technology, uh, devices, content, et cetera. Her career has been in education. And so our idea with Bamboo Learning was to take the ability of voice devices, also known as smart speakers, um, like the Amazon Echo, which has Alexa as the software or the voice assistant, and Google's Nest product line, which has um, the Google Assistant as the voice assistant, basically use those products to help kids learn. Pretty simple. And our focus is generally on kids, um, kindergarten through fifth grade. So think five years old to 11. And a few of the reasons, one, kids absolutely love those devices. Um, They can control them in a way that, you know, a lot of kids, especially on the younger age groups, they can't kind of control everything. Like their parents are kind of taking them to school. The teachers are telling them what to do. Parents are telling them, but they can tell Alexa what to do. And additionally, I think being able to offer something that kids can do on their own. So one of the problems with learning applications today is there's installation to do, there's configuration. Often what we hear is parents feel like they have to sit with their child while they're learning on the tablet or the computer which especially with the pandemic going on when parents are trying to work from home and parents are basically have in many cases, especially with the younger kids, they kind of have to be the teacher. I don't want to take anything away from, from teachers in schools, but it's really, really hard in this environment. And so what we did from the very beginning, way before the pandemic was we wanted our products to be really easy to use. And so literally we have a math product called Bamboo Math. The child can say, Alexa, open Bamboo Math, and it just starts, and they start getting math problems. And the parent doesn't have to stay there because we built something called um, uh, the Bamboo Grove, which is a, a dashboard. So parents can, can go um, to the dashboard and see exactly how their kids, uh, kids are doing. Okay, so let me bring that back to Amazon and what I learned. One... You know, one of the great things about Kindle, uh, which we talked about, and I remember Jeff hitting this quite hard, no installation, no configuration, no setup. Sounds similar, right? And that's because it's a better customer experience. If you have to look through manuals to know how to use software, like the company that built that, I would argue, has already failed. What were some of the things that... um you learned during that time as a TA that you brought over to the company, like, I don't know, the, sayings yeah. that you got that, that you now find yourself. Yeah. Sayings. Uh, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the press release FAQ process we've borrowed. It's a great process. It's an incredible process. Yeah. Can I just say, but let me, let me ask this question. Yeah. Yeah. Does Amazon hire consultants like a Bain, a Deloitte, a McKinsey, uh, to help them strategically plan initiatives? Never, ever. <laughs> I, I don't know that it's ever. I mean, I'm sure maybe before I was there, there was a time maybe it happened. Uh, in my time there, I, I don't, like, I never heard of that. It doesn't because, mean, like, yeah. maybe you'd hire a specialist. Like, if you were launching something totally new, you might hire an individual person. Not hire, but first sure. of all, the the bias would be, just hire that person. Right. Don't don't bring in a consultant. Just hire yeah. them. If you can't hire that person, find someone like them who you can hire. 
So anyway, but you were going to ask a follow-up. Well, their about that. their approach is like totally different. They they you know they're, they're famously huge PowerPoint builders. Yeah, and to the point where the PowerPoints are like 60, 80 pages long, and each slide is like so visually overwhelming, you don't even know what's happening. And yeah. and your approach is to write a story. Yeah, and can you? Just tell me like the lesson that you learned from it because I've tried to adopt the Amazon model and it's it's uh it's much more difficult to be like wishy washy and just look at my enthusiasm and how confident <laughs> right. I am. Yeah. <laughs> and how complex this idea is when right. you have to write it in six pages. Yeah. Well, that's precisely the lesson. And and I I went to a a, a graduate program actually in public policy, and one thing we got really, really good at was um, writing the, I think then it was a three-page memo. And the idea was, you're a staffer for a governor or congressman or the head of the EPA, and there's an issue that hits your desk, and you have to explain it to the head of the agency in three pages. It gets you really good at writing clear, concise, uh, unambiguous policy. And so when I got to, I'd, I'd worked at another company. Uh, I have huge respect for that company. I learned a lot, a company called Real Networks. They were one of the innovators in uh, audio and video um, delivery over the internet, but it was a PowerPoint culture. And what I realized quickly after being at Amazon, one, I just felt much more at home writing prose, even though when you first do it, although I'd had plenty of practice, it's harder. It it can take longer, but the big lesson is exactly what you said. You have a meeting of six people, you go through a PowerPoint, people ask a bunch of questions. And then normally those six people go back to their desk and they're working on the project. And inevitably, very soon, usually, sometimes the same day, sometimes 15 minutes after the meeting, two people got totally different interpretations and therefore marching orders out of the meeting and they're working on two hopefully not conflicting things but you know prioritization is different between two so what you get is six different interpretations of what was decided in the meeting and so it's a waste of time it you know the meeting was a total waste of time in that case the follow-up is it's not as efficient it's not as effective when it's written down and when you culturally have learned that if there's ambiguous prose, you have to ask questions and you actually rewrite the document until everybody's like, oh, okay, I get it now. You know, are we going to do like a, an example would be, I could imagine a business model discussion where you have on a PowerPoint, you know, subscription, free trial, <laughs> Um, a la carte upsell. Those are just bullets. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> and then people go away and like, well, should we prioritize the subscription or how long is the free trial going to be? Oh, what? You know, we we debated it and some people said seven days and other people said 14 days, but I think we settled on 14 and the other person said, I think we settled on seven. I mean, it's just like that simple. Versus you write it in prose and you say, okay, we, we debated all the different business models. We decided we should launch with a 14-day free trial 
subscription-based model. In the future, maybe we'll look at advertising and a la carte, but for right now, here's what we're doing. Like you just saved all this ambiguity by having to write sentences. So when I got there, I was like, okay, this is the place. I mean, it wasn't the only reason, but I thought, okay, this is way better. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, people have to adjust when they first get to Amazon, but um, getting rid of that ambiguity is really important if, if it's possible. So in your company, is it four? Is it four pages? Well, no. I mean, <laughs> just know, curious. although I can't remember a six pager we've written. Yeah. So they tend to be, they probably have been four, but there's not an official rule about six. All right. I well, I don't want to end on six versus four yeah, pages. Right, so right, you right. got to give me a big takeaway about failure. I'm, by the way, target demographic for Bamboo Learning. I have a six and a half year old. We're going to go download it immediately. Cool. Yeah, uh, you don't even I, have to download. Just find your Alexa and just yeah, say yeah. open Bamboo Math and open Bamboo Books. Uh, well, Alexa. It's just too bamboo. easy. Yeah, it's too easy. That's right. <laughs> and try Bamboo Music too. It's the first one we built. It doesn't have the visuals um, if you have a, a device with with visuals, but it's for music. It's kind of, you know, if you don't know anything about music or I've had six-year-olds who try it and then they, you know, the parents love this. They try it for a couple of weeks and I've had six-year-olds say to their parents, you know, I, I think I want to learn an instrument. <laughs> That's like, awesome. Like, when does that happen? You know, usually it's the parents saying, Will you learn the bio? You know, let's take music lessons. And the kids well, are like, ah, I want to play. I, I would love that. Ian, tell me the theory on failure at Bamboo yeah. Learning that you've brought to the company that you share with others as, as they start. What, what is it that you say to them about failure? How do they know how you feel about it? How they yeah. should feel about it? Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing, I mean, in a startup, it's you, you have to, Amazon was this way in the early days too, like, we can't bet the entire company on something that's, you know, got a 10% chance of success like that. You know, Amazon can bet a, probably not, they probably wouldn't do it on a 10% chance. So on the one hand, I mean, the entire company is like, it's never been done before. So inherently there's some risk there, but what I would say is where we want to take risks is in areas where we can create a new customer experience, something that's never been done before. If we build really cool, innovative products and they don't work, but the innovation was to create a great customer experience, that's okay. You know, we'll find our set of innovations that customers absolutely love. If we're, you know, trying to, excuse me, trying to innovate on like whether our charts should be bar charts or line graphs, like that's not interesting to me. <laughs> so innovate on the big things that customers care about. And, you know, I'll back you up. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. So, you know, that's sort of two lessons from Amazon. Be willing to, to take big risks, but also be incredibly customer focused. You know, Amazon has a saying, you know, it's such a, it's, it's like in everyone's head all the time start from the customer and work backwards. Like any, any consumer facing business would be wise to do that. And, um, you know, that's, that's probably the other big lesson. You shared one more that I don't know if you even noticed, but like, if you try it, I'll have your back. 
Yeah. And I think that might be one of the most important ones in a company yeah. for somebody to feel safe enough to even try. Yeah. No, that's, that is, um, yeah. I mean, I can think of an example of, um, I probably can't go into tons of detail, but um, we had a relatively new employee within about four or five weeks. He took the weekend and and came up with a totally new way to evaluate answers is what I could say about it. And at first, you know, at first I'm like, wait, well, you know, like our answers were pretty good. Why are we doing this? But I was like, okay, he's thought about this a lot and he has some previous background where like it, it actually, he, he was interested and, and wanted to do it. And, you know, lo and behold, it, it's created a much better result for the company. So I, you know, I think it is human nature when you've got like 15 things to do, but he took his weekend and worked on the 16th. And it might be that that 16th one is going to be like the second the or third. Mo- yeah. It might be the first most important, but it might, you know, if it's in the top three, I'm thrilled. And it certainly um, has already earned its its way into um, a much higher priority item. So I was, you know, I, I kind of, I said, I think he knows what he's doing and I should just let him do it. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. We'll all have learned something from that. Um, so That's awesome. Ian, thank you so much for agreeing to this conversation and for the insights. Well, Diana, it was an absolute pleasure. I loved your questions. Um, it was really fun. And, uh, you know, I, I imagine your audience uh, learns a lot from all of your podcasts. So hopefully they can learn a little bit from this one. Oh, this is so great. Cool. Here's to six page memos for, for <laughs> everybody. Very good. I am so grateful to Ian Freed for coming on the program and sharing his insights and learnings and takeaways from his time at Amazon with us. It's a really rare look into the inner workings of an organization that isn't as open about all of these programs. So I'm really enjoying these after action reviews that we've been doing this season. I hope you are too. If you could do me a favor and just find me on social media, either Twitter or Instagram, I'm at Diana Kander. And just let me know if these after action reviews are as awesome to you as they are to me and what your takeaways are. That certainly will give me the energy to find more of these opportunities and bring more great content like this to you. I am Diana Kander reminding you that curiosity is your superpower. Make sure to use it today.